So tonight we're thinking about how and why we might want to tell others about our faith. Before I came to faith 12 years ago, to be honest, I didn't have much contact with Christians or regular churchgoers. As far as I remember, in my 20-year business career, I don't think I ever met anyone who spoke about their faith or admitted to being a churchgoer. The only example I had, really, was my parents, who had always believed they'd, they'd always gone to church, but they never really spoke about their faith. They had taken us to Sunday school when we were children, but from about the age of 10 onwards, I never remember them saying anything um, about their faith or encouraging us on the subject, and I thought that that's how it was supposed to be. I thought it was supposed to be a private matter. And in a way, I suppose I was the same, because I was, I suppose, an atheist. I didn't believe in God, Um, but I never particularly raised the subject with anyone else or tried to persuade them of my own point of view. And it's not uncommon for some people to say, surely the best kind of Christian is the kind of person who is a Christian but doesn't talk about their faith. Surely it's a kind of private matter. And sometimes people will even refer to a dear relation or friend, perhaps great Aunt Jemima, and they will talk about her in glowing terms and say what a wonderful Christian, what a wonderful faith she had, but she never talked about it. But there's a problem with that view, isn't there? And that is, there's, a, there's an unanswered question, which is who told great Aunt Jemima? And if the early Christians had not told people about their faith, none of us would know and none of us would be believers or churchgoers. So why should we tell people about our faith? Well, first of all, because Jesus told us to. Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead. And then he said, now go and tell people about this amazing news, that you can be forgiven, that you can be set free, that you can have eternal life. And really, he had no other plans than that we would go and tell others. The word go appears 1,514 times in the Bible. I didn't count that, someone else did. But... um, And in the New Testament, it occurs 233 times. And in Matthew's Gospel alone, it occurs 54 times. And Jesus says, go and tell. Go and invite. Go and make disciples. So that's the first reason, because Jesus tells us to. And the second reason for telling people about our faith is because it's out of love for others. As we look around in the world, we see people who are struggling to find meaning and purpose in their lives. Struggling with guilt, struggling with fear, perhaps fear of death, and so on. Imagine if you were in a desert and you came across an oasis with a wonderful supply of water. It would be ridiculous and selfish, wouldn't it, to say, oh, this is really good, I'm glad I found some water, but I don't think I'll tell anybody else. That would, be, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And more and more today, there's a real recognition of the fact that there's a kind of spiritual thirst out there. And sometimes that recognition comes from surprising sources. The singer Sinead O'Connor 
said this. She said, as a race, we feel empty because our spirituality has been wiped out and we don't know how to express ourselves. And as a result, we're encouraged to fill that gap with alcohol, drugs, sex, money, possessions, entertainment, you name it, whatever. People out there, she adds grimly, are screaming for the truth. So there's a real need in the world for meaning and depth to our lives. And the third reason to tell people is because it's natural to pass on good news, isn't it? We can't keep it to ourselves. If one of our family, a new baby arrives, everyone's on the phone telling everybody it's good news and we want to share it. And of course the gospel means good news. Imagine if you had a 33-year-old friend who died and, uh, and his funeral was arranged and he was buried and then three days later you met him walking around fully alive. Would you say, oh, I don't think I'll bother telling anyone about that? Of course you wouldn't. You'd run around telling everybody, my friends, come back from the dead. And of course, that's exactly what the first followers of Jesus did. And it's still good news today. So why wouldn't we want to do the same? So there are three really good reasons for sharing our faith. But how do we go about sharing our faith? Well, in my experience, I think that there are two equal and opposite dangers when we share our faith, which are either being insensitive about it, being a bit over the top, or being too fearful and being afraid to share our faith. And uh, in our family, I would say that, and this is uh, perhaps a little unfair, but no, I'd say that, um, that perhaps in our family, that I erred on the side of fear and holding back. And Kirsty, possibly my wife Kirsty, erred on the side of over-enthusiasm. Now please understand that I think that Kirsty's error is a much smaller error than my error, because Kirsty was just so excited about coming to faith and the wonderful effect that it had on her life that she couldn't stop telling people. She ran around telling everybody she could find. And within a week of praying and asking Jesus into her life, people were crossing the road to avoid her in our village, because she was dangerous. So she was a little bit insensitive. But for me, although coming to faith was the most wonderful experience for me, and it brought wonderful change to my life, I was much more reserved and British about it. And and I was afraid that what my friends would think of me, and as a result, I think I missed many opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people for whom it might have been vital and life-changing. But I missed those opportunities. And so the key question is, what's the right way to share our faith? How can we get the right balance? And I think, in essence, it boils down to one word, really, and that's love. That's why we tell people, and that's how we tell people, with love. And we can think of it under five headings. And um, we're going to use, um, there are five words that all begin with the letter P, just to make it easy to remember. And um, the first one is presence. So would you like to pick up your Bibles and turn to page 969, which is Matthew chapter 5. 969. 
So this is Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 13, where it says salt and light. Okay? And uh, <clears throat> this is Jesus talking to his, dis- to his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the earth loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And then the next thing he says in verse 14 is, you are the light of the world. And in verse 16 he goes on to say, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says to this group of people, he says, look, just as he, he might say to us tonight, he says, look, you can make a difference in this world. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What he's saying is that we can have a wide-ranging influence by how we live. And we do that not by withdrawing, of course, from people. He, sa- he goes on to say, it's no good if you cover the light up. We do it by involvement. We have to be out there. We have to be out there in our workplaces, in our families, with our friends. Whatever circles we move in, if you like, we're on the front line. And um, so we need to be in the world. But we also need to be different, Jesus says. So you are salt. You're the salt of the earth. Now salt in the ancient world wasn't just used to make food flavoursome, it was, it was used instead of refrigeration to stop things going bad. And so the way his listeners would have understood this is that Jesus was saying, you're the people who need to stop the society that around us from going bad. And you're light, you're the ones to allow the light of Christ to shine in your lives, to shine through you. And so he says we do it by good deeds. Everything that we do and say as Christians. And I suppose it's, it could be summarised um, in, the, in the well-known expression, love your neighbour as yourself. It's living out the Christian life, particularly um, with those in close proximity to us. And it's really enough for them to know that we're Christians. Um, because once they know that, they will watch our lives and they can understand um, the Christian the, the good news of Christianity through how we live. But if they know we're Christians, they will watch us. And we're called to be different. And, um, and it can be hard. About a year after I first found faith, I had sort of come out, as it were, in the office. And people knew that I was, I'd, come, I'd found faith and that, and that I was going to church and I was a Christian. And, um, and I knew that, I, I sort of knew that they were watching me, but I never really knew how much they were until this one day when I was in a management meeting and, and I was expecting a really important call. And so I said to the group in the room around the table, I said, look, do you mind if I leave my phone on because I'm expecting a really important call to come in? And they said, no, that's fine. And three times during that meeting, my phone rang and I answered the phone. And each time it was not the important caller that I was hoping for. And so I said to the person, I'm so sorry, I'm in a meeting, Um, can I call you back later? And I put the phone down. And uh, soon the meeting broke up and I went back to my office. And just outside my office was where the the open plan area. And the finance manager sat there um, and the assistant finance manager sat there and a couple of other people sat there. And, uh, And my phone, and my door was open, my phone rang again. And I picked it up and I answered it. 
And once again, it was not the important call I was hoping for. And I just said, I'm really sorry, I'm in a meeting now, I'll call you back later. And almost immediately, there was this kind of explosion outside the door. He lied! He lied! We caught him out! Panzer said a porky! And it, they, they, I, I'd, I hadn't even thought, really. But I'd told a white lie down the phone. And the office heard it. And they absolutely loved it. They, I, I didn't hear, you know, they, I didn't stop hearing about it for a week. So it can be difficult. It's not necessarily an easy call letting people know in that sort of an environment that you're a Christian. But it's what we're called to. And, uh, and we're called to a different way of life. And that's what we're striving for. And uh, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul talks about in a husband and wife relationship where perhaps one of the partners comes to faith and the other hasn't. And, and what the Apostle Paul says, he gives very clear guidance, um, and he says... If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their husband or wife when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. And so often I've noticed on Alpha, when we, sometimes we'll say to people, well, how did you come to, to be here? And, they'll, and, and quite often people will say, well, actually, you know, my friend or my partner or my family member did an Alpha course, you know, last year or two years ago, whatever it was, and we saw a change in them, and, uh, and it, it was, I just wanted to go on the course because I could see what a difference it made in their lives. And of course, living out the Christian life involves more than just our family and our immediate friends. It involves the needs of people around us, relieving human need, hunger, homelessness, poverty. A little while ago, Reading Borough Council held a charities fair where local, in charity, local charities were invited to, who in, they're involved in social action, were invited to have a stall and, and, and explain to people um, what they were doing. Do you know that only about 5% of Reading goes to church on a Sunday? But over 50% of those charities were Christian charities. In fact, I think it was nearer 75%. I can't remember, but it was definitely more than half. So 5% of Reading were supplying well over half of all of the voluntary social action going on in the town. That's quite a witness, isn't it? And then, of course, there are even bigger things. Social justice, the removal of, 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 of injustice, inhumanity, gross inequalities. And uh, I, there was a wonderful man called William Wilberforce, um, who, at the age of 27, sensed God's call to fight against the inhuman and degrading slave trade. 10 million slaves left Africa for the plantations in the year 1787, in one year. And in that year, William Wilberforce put down a motion in the House of Commons about the slave trade to have it banned. And he, he, he was not popular. There was a lot of money in the slave trade. But he said this, he said, So enormous, so dreadful did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from that time, determined I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And Wilberforce and several others as well, um, inspired by their Christian faith, um, fought this long battle. Bills were debated in 1789, 91, 1792, 94, 96, 98, 99. They all failed. In 1831, he was still 
30 years later, he was still um, struggling to try and have the slavery abolished. And he sent a message to the Anti-Slavery Society in which he said, our motto must be perseverance and ultimately I trust the Almighty will crown our efforts with success. And in July 1833, the Abolition of Slavery Bill was passed in both Houses of Parliament. Three days later, Wilberforce died. He was buried in Westminster Abbey in national recognition of his 45 years of persevering struggle on behalf of African slaves. And today there are massive needs. There are massive injustices out there. What about the fact that 800 million people live on less than a dollar a day and go to bed hungry every night? Do you know, if we were to live on bread and water for the rest of our lives, we would be better off than hundreds of millions of people. Every three seconds, poverty takes a child's life. Today and every day, until, we, until the world gets its act together, 30,000 children will die of avoidable diseases. 8,000 will die of AIDS. The rock star Bono, um, inspired by his Christian faith, speaks of his time working in in an Ethiopian orphanage. He said, we lived for a month working at the orphanage. The locals knew me as Dr. Good Morning. The children called me the girl with a beard. Don't ask. It just blew my mind. On our last day at the orphanage, a man handed me his baby and said, take him with you. He knew that in Ireland his son would live, but in Ethiopia Ethiopia, his son would probably die. I turned him down. In that moment, I started this journey. In that moment, I became the worst thing of all, a rock star with a cause. Except this isn't a cause. Six and a half thousand Africans dying a day of treatable, preventable disease, dying for want of medicines that you and I can get at our local chemist. That's not a cause. That's an emergency. And I think it's easy to be overwhelmed by the scale of problems um, in the world and to think, you know, can we really make a difference? Interestingly, last night I was at a meeting where um, the vicar of St. Mary's Burfield was speaking um, and saying that her church was clubbing together um, in their congregation to raise £40 a week in order to buy a good square meal for 200 African children once a week. So in, 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 a, in a poor part of South Africa, there are 200 children who once a week are getting one square meal because St. Mary's Burfield is clubbing together and buying that meal. And she invited other churches to think about getting involved and perhaps buying them a meal on a different day of the week. We can make a difference. Nelson Mandela said, it's not the kings and generals who make history, but it's, it's the masses of the people. So... That was the first P, presence, and the rest of the P's are going to be much shorter than that one. Um, The second P is, when we think about how we tell others, how and why we should tell others, is persuasion. So we can share our faith by persuasion. Uh, Would you like to turn briefly to Acts chapter 17? It's on page 1113. So it's it's on page 1113. It's chapter 17 and it's verses 2 to 4. 
and it's an account of, of, of the Apostle Paul. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. It says there that some of the people that he spoke to were persuaded. And I think there's a big difference between persuasion and pressure. Pressure is not a good idea when we share our faith. I don't know um, how you respond to pressure, but generally speaking, if someone tries to pressurise me into anything, like those people who call up and try and sell you something on the phone, I tend to run a mile. And the effect of pressure is the opposite effect of persuasion. Pressure is very unpersuasive. But Paul, sa- but, but Paul says that he tries to persuade people, and he does it by reasoning and explaining. And the reason we can do that is because the Christian faith isn't a blind leap of faith. It's a reasonable step of faith. There are good reasons to believe, and we've covered those earlier in the course. And that's why I would encourage you to look into those reasons carefully, so that if somebody says to you, well, why do you believe? You know, how can you believe that someone rose from the dead? That you're able to say, well, actually, there's quite a lot of evidence. These are some of the reasons why I believe. The Apostle Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And those are two key things. I've never met anybody who became a Christian, who came to faith as a result of an argument. I've never heard that testimony. I've never heard someone say, do you know I got into this huge argument with this Christian bloke? And we argued and we argued and argued. At the end I said, okay, you've won, I'll become a Christian. I've never heard that testimony. When I came on the Alpha course as a guest, I had some genuine and thought-out objections to the Christian faith. For me, one of the biggest ones was about other religions. How could Christianity be so arrogant, I thought, to claim that it was right and that other religions were wrong? That was, my, that was my biggest issue, I think. But some really patient and loving Christians who were on the course listened to me and helped me and explained and pointed me to some great writers on the subject. And the, in, in the end, I came to see that an even worse dilemma that I would be in as a non-believer. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, which is one of the books we've got at the front here, he sealed it for me with the following thought. C.S. Lewis said, if you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of all the world is simply one huge mistake. That most of the human race has always been wrong about the thing that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I could take a more liberal view. I was free to think that all those religions, even the strangest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. Although, of course, being a Christian does mean that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. And the gentle persuasion of those Christians on the Alpha Course and encouraging me to read around the subject helped me to get past some of those 
objections, if you like, that I had to taking a step of faith. And I think they did that out of love. The third P is proclamation. Communicating the message to others. The message at the heart of Christianity, that it's all about Jesus. And I suppose that's what we're trying to do on the Alpha course. It's to focus on the person of Jesus and try to communicate that message. And there are many ways that we can do that. But one of the simplest ways is to simply say to people, come and see. As I said at the beginning, you may have friends or family members or colleagues and you might want to say to them, do you know, I, I re- you, you may not even believe, but you might, you might say to them, well, do you know, I really enjoyed the Alpha course. There's another one starting in January. Why don't you come along with me and do the course? It's quite natural, isn't it, to say, come and see. One of the great archbishops of Canterbury, William Temple, wrote a commentary on John, on John's Gospel. Um, and next to the words where it says that Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, he wrote the greatest service that one person can render another, bringing them to Jesus. And it's something that we can all do. But Peter the Apostle became one of the greatest influences in human history. Countless millions of people and lives have been affected by the Apostle Peter. Now, we can't all be the Apostle Peter, but we can say to people, Come and see. There was once a man called um, Albert McMakin. He was 24 years of age. He was a farmer. He'd just become um, a Christian. He'd just come to faith. And he was really excited about his faith. And he wanted to bring his friends along as well. And he heard that there was going to be an event on in the local town. And uh, there was going to be someone speaking about Jesus. And he decided he would invite all his friends. And uh, there was one particular friend that he had who he really wanted to come. And his, this other friend was another farmer's son, and, uh, but he really wasn't interested. This, this friend of his was, he had loads of girlfriends, he was very good looking, um, and uh, he was not interested at all. And he was thinking, how can I get this, this guy along to, um, to, hear, to hear this uh, event? And uh, at that time, this was many, many years ago, and there weren't that many vehicles around, and he, he suddenly thought, I know, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll tell him he can drive the van if he comes. And, and so he went to his friend. He said, would you like to come along? He said, by the way, you can drive the van. And his friend said, oh, okay, I'm not really interested in the, in, you know, I, won't, I probably won't come in, but I'll drive the van anyway. So anyway, his friend got in the van and he drove them all to this event. And, and he just snuck in the back of the tent to have a listen to what was going on. And he, he was spellbound. And he went back and he went back every night for the whole week that this event was going on, listening to, to hearing about Jesus. And... Um, Since that time, that young man who he invited along has spoken in person to over 210 million people about the Christian faith. He's been the friend and confidant of at least nine American presidents. And he's spoken, not live, but on, through television and so on, to half the world's population. And his name you've probably heard of it before, is Billy Graham. Now, we can't all be Billy Grahams, but we can be Albert McMakins. We can be that friend who says, why don't you just come along and see? And we can tell our own story. That's what Paul Paul the Apostle did. If you read the book of Acts, Paul is constantly 
telling people his story about how he used to persecute the Christians when he, before he came to faith and then how he'd met Jesus on the Damascus Road and his life had been utterly transformed and, uh, and now he was going around telling people about it. We can all tell our own stories. And when friends ask you about your faith, you can tell your story. And the wonderful thing is that no one can argue with your story. It's your story. When Jesus healed a blind man, there were a lot of people who came and questioned the blind man. And that the, the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees came and they questioned him. And they were cross-examining him and trying to, trying to find out the flaw in what had happened. Because they didn't trust Jesus. But this blind man, or the man who had been blind, said, Listen, I don't know the answer to all your questions. All I can tell you is, before I met Jesus I was blind and now I can see. There's no answer to that. So that's the third P. The fourth P is power. And by that, I mean the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that some of you were deeply touched by the Holy Spirit on the Alpha Day, because one or two of you have told me about that, and it's made a difference in your lives. If people ask me why I believe, one of the things that I say is that I have experienced unmistakably the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. Of course, we don't live on a permanent high, that's unrealistic, but there are precious moments when the Holy Spirit touches us, sometimes whispers to us, sometimes just to remind us of God's love for us, sometimes, sometimes to convict us of things that we need to stop doing or let go of, sometimes to heal us, sometimes to draw us into God's presence to pray, but always because God loves us. And the fifth P is prayer. Prayer for others. The Apostle Paul loved, he loved people, and, uh, and out of that love came a desire to pray for them. In Romans 10, in verse 1, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. And so he was always praying for people that they would come to faith. And, uh, and so often, when someone comes to faith, their faith comes alive, we find that someone has been praying. That happened with Kirsty and I. We never knew until after we came to faith, because we, we didn't really know any Christians before that. But we had a friend called Mary, and Mary had been, um, um, she had a very difficult life from teenage years onwards. She had gone off the rails, she'd got, become addicted to heroin, she started stealing from her family, from, from friends, um, and uh, in fact she ended up spending some time in, in Holloway Prison. Um, after she was convicted of, of, of various offences connected with it. And um, anyway, she, when she came out of prison, one of her friends um, picked her up and a few days later said, why don't you come on an Alpha course? And she didn't really didn't want anything to do with it at first, but to cut a long story short, Mary eventually went on the Alpha course and she came to faith. And then a few years later, God called her to go and work in a very remote part of South Africa um, with AIDS orphans. And today she, she heads up an organisation that is looking, looking after I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of AIDS orphans. But somewhere in the middle of that, Kirsty and I both came to faith. And it was only after that we discovered that Mary had been praying for us for, for years and years that we would come to faith. And, and 
her prayers were answered. So we can pray for people to find faith. And maybe, maybe that's a little challenge for you tonight. Maybe that's one of the things that in the small groups you could begin with, maybe even tonight, to start to pray together for others to find faith. Well, let's finish with a prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the amazing good news of Jesus Christ. Crucified, risen from the dead, alive today, and here with us now by his Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to find, first of all, in our own lives, that relationship with you. And then in due course to have this joy, this privilege of being able to tell others and to see them find life and freedom in Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen.